Hey, everybody. Welcome to Not Safe for Wonks. This is Brandon Buchanan uh, here on behalf of Leia Rose and Kennedy Cooper. And today we've got a very special episode. They're all very special. Indeed. They're all very special. This one is intensely special. Like on a scale of one to ten, I would give it a... Kennedy, what do you think? 11. That's not even on the scale. I hate when people do that shit. When you establish a scale. We're turn- no, but we're turning it up. I- I'm, t- I'm saying my amp needs to go higher than 10. We got to expand the scale. Oh, I hate you fucking scale it. You know, these people who expand the scale, they make everything meaningless in life. Because everything's got to be fucking hyperbole in this social media era. All right, fine, fine, fine. I give it a nine. Excellent. I give it an eight out of nine. There we go. It's I'm going in the opposite direction. Now you're now you're doing it correct. Because like, listen, we are going to be talking about the Department <laughs> of Peace today. Yes. This is a long running idea that goes back to the founding of the country. Mm-hmm. And it's a big deal. But, you know, if the nukes start flying, we'll have to give that an 11. Yeah. I, I mean, part of my reason for being so exaggerated about it is that, like, I feel like we are kind of in a very precarious world state and that if we don't start mm-hmm. setting a new tone for what we do as a country diplomatically, technologically, all of these things soon that we're kind of asking for it. Like in the, in the next couple of decades, there's going to be a whole new fucking world of imperialist opportunities and resource extraction and climate change and shit. And you bet your ass that unless we have an administration that directly focuses on promoting peace on, on the world stage, we're going to be fucking having troops all over the globe trying to extract what little resources the earth has left. Well, one of the big ones I think about now is the the Arctic. If all the ice melts and the world continues to warm, and this kind of seems likely at this point that like all the ice is going to melt. These areas which have traditionally only stayed relatively neutral because they were so inhospitable are going to become places with resources that people want. And like the idea that these these Arctic regions are going to be able to stay in their current tense diplomatic neutrality. We already have had conflicts over these areas and they're completely unusable right now for the most part. There's like fucking penguins to study and some ice and that's it. We're fighting about who gets to study the penguins the hardest, <laughs> you know? It's fucking a big game of Mr. Popper's penguins, and we got to decide who gets custody of those fuckers. When we are thinking about the effects of climate change, this is without even touching on the idea that if you have that kind of mass thawing, you're going to be thawing out like weird pathogens and diseases and shit. Oh, that God, have yeah. never, Yeah, that have never even been cataloged by modern science. And there could be like bubonic plague mark two that's immune to all of our antibiotics hanging out like in the Arctic and like unthawing after thousands of years. Putting that shit to the side, even just regular ass climate change is going to change the idea of national defenses and put our resources in such a stark situation that everything that we currently know about human interaction and national defense is going to go flying out of the window. It's going to be like World War One, where everything that you knew before World War One, like, forget it. It doesn't even it's not even relevant anymore. I would go back way further and say that this is going to be like 400 to 700 AD period in Europe and the Middle East when everybody just fucking moved like every single goddamn person. Right. And even conservatives at this point are admitting that like, you know, people are going to seek higher ground when the water levels rise and stuff like everybody knows this now. Mm-hmm. And like what with the uh, the Amazon burning and shit, there's been some people kind of proposing that um, just nations would um, go in there with firefighting forces and say, Bolsonaro, we're extinguishing this fire, whether you like it or not. And while that's, you know, okay, that well, that's that's a pretty good idea. You know, th- th- there's definitely going to be this sort of insurgence in green imperialism, like uh, imperialism that's coded in a paint of um, protecting the climate, you know, in the, in the same sense that uh, the Soviets did red imperialism it's like green imperialism is going to be coming soon anybody who would go online and complain about imperialism if an international force were to go and extinguish these fires in brazil you're a jackass and you can quote me on that i don't want to hear anybody on twitter (laughs) real talk i would like to see the kind of international response to this that people have had to like 
oh, we got to oust Maduro, you know, like that whole thing. Like, let's talk about Bolsonaro and the Amazon fire that way, please. Yeah. And I mean, um, Bolivia's socialist president, Evo Morales, launched like the largest cargo airliner from his country to start help extinguish the fires, whether Bolsonaro liked it or not. Just because I don't want to leave that conversation closed, I wasn't saying that um, forcefully like extinguishing the Amazon fires would be green imperialism. What I mean is that in 15 years, you're going to see some like GOP jackass being like, we got to invade Thailand to protect the rainforests. Right. I hear what you're saying. And I do know that that was what you meant. I think this entire conversation is just to say one of the reasons why it's important to promote peace right now is because if we do not solve the climate issue, our per, our current perception of what peace is and what's possible is going to change in a wild way. It's going to change in a way that we mm-hmm. can't even fucking fathom. So as we talk about the Department of Peace and its history and what we hope to envision out of this, it should be said that this should go hand in hand, obviously, with a very strong uh, agenda around preserving human civilization, because throughout time, civilization has made peace possible. Well, and it's interesting because we're going to get into this, you know, a lot probably throughout this episode, but that's kind of one of the core issues of the whole kind of peace building thing is what creates peace. Some people kind of see peace as sort of this void. It's a lack of something. It's a non, it's a state of non-war, but that's not actually a great viewpoint necessarily because what we really need is an active peace. Mm-hmm. That's correct. There needs to be a presence of peace rather than a lack of war. Yes. Marianne also said uh, it's not just that the Department of Defense is like a surgeon, but that right now our national security agenda, quote, could be likened to someone who does not take care of their diet, doesn't take that much care of exercise, doesn't take that much care of lifestyle in terms of health, and then just waits for an inevitable sickness and hopes the doctor can eradicate or suppress the symptoms of their sickness. Which means if you're fucking loafing around the house and eating fucking McDonald's and drinking a handle of vodka every day, and then you wait, (laughs) wow, I need a surgeon. No shit, because you were on a course that made surgery inevitable. So it's very important that we get off of the course that makes a violent conflict inevitable for self-preservation or preventing a humanitarian atrocity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the people who make scalpels shouldn't be necessarily the people that you solely ask for advice on when surgery about your medical. Yes, correct. Correct. Uh, and that's kind of the situation that we're in right now is that we have these, you know, kind of military industrial companies wielding a lot of influence over politics and putting kind of a constant pressure on our military that like, hey, don't you want to use all this technology because we need you to buy it? <laughs> mm-hmm. The military industrial complex is so ingrained within the the American government. I mean, God, you, you guys hear about the uh, F-35 program and just the billions and billions of dollars that are being dumped into that. Yeah. Yeah. Before anybody like takes me out of context, I obviously do not mean that every general relentlessly advocates for war. Like generals are the people who, unlike what you see in movies, are the people that actually know what war is like uh, more than the politicians and typically uh, are the ones that advise that war is done as little as possible or go into the actual logistics of what war costs. Yeah, generally, the more you're abstracted from the battlefield, the more you prom- you're going to promote war because you don't know. Right. Yeah, like, you know, John Bolton, he's like so far removed from the actual sure. doing of the shooting of brown people. So I want to like talk a little bit about the recent context of the creation of the Department of Peace, because Marianne Williamson has a very good uh in-depth proposal on our website, but I feel like a lot of our listeners have at least glanced at it. Maybe they haven't studied it or whatever, but um, I want to read an article that was written about Dennis Kucinich's proposal Mm. for a Department of Peace. And I'd like you guys to get a little taste of the tone that this article is written in uh, so that some of you people who are like literal children who have somehow slipped into the <laughs> podcast can understand like more of the context of like what left ideas were talked about like in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, let's get into it. 
It is the hope diamond of liberal ideas, pure, breathtaking, and highly impractical in the real world. The proposal has been submitted for consideration in every Congress since 2001. The idea behind it is that the federal government could stop wars, pacify street gangs, and distill violence out of the American soil itself. All it would take is a new cabinet-level department and $10 billion a year in taxpayer money. But now, the ultimate Capitol Hill long shot, the U.S. Department of Peace, is looking even less likely than usual. It's losing its champion in the House. There's a little bit of discussion on Kucinich's history. It will also take a little then out of the Capitol's battle of ideas by removing a legislator who was unafraid to put 200 proof liberalism down on paper. During his time in Congress, listen to what 200 proof liberalism is like, you guys. Kucinich sponsored bills to create universal pre-kindergarten, to eliminate the federal death penalty and nuclear weapons, and to impeach both President George W. Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney. What an unbelievable person. 200 proof liberalism. 200 proof. This is moonshine. Universal kindergarten and pre-K. God. Fucking honestly, like, impeaching Dick Cheney is the right-wing position. The centrist position is guillotining him. (laughs) What's the left position, then? Oh, I don't think I can say that on here. Throwing him in the sea. Wow, okay, so... Demanding that the fish take him. No, the, 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 the left-wing position is throwing him into a rack with nothing but the clothes on his back. <laughs> okay, that is, that is very rough. So here's Kucinich's bill. In brief, uh, and Marianne Williams's proposal is very similar to this, except there's a big extra that we'll talk about as we go in here. A secretary of peace would sit in the president's cabinet and on the National Security Council. The secretary would be given a special new role in the military's decisions. If a conflict was about to start, the secretaries of defense and state would have to consult the peace secretary concerning nonviolent means of conflict resolution. There would also be a peace academy modeled after the military academies. After four years, graduates would be required to spend five years in public service. And the bill would encourage the establishment of a peace day. It's $10 billion a year, a little more than the EPA, a little less than the Department of Commerce. In the current Congress, focused so heavily on spending and debt, this sounds less like legislation and more like an attempt to give a Tea Party Republican a stroke. (laughs) Good goal, Mike. And this was uh, David Fahrenheit, who is, you know, apparently the Democrats' favorite guy, oddly enough. Yeah. This article is dripping with, like, um, fucking old boomer reads the newspaper and, and makes squinty eyes as teenage daughter when, when she brings up her boyfriend. Like, really? I'm like, really? You're going out with him? Yeah, correct. So I didn't want to get too deep into, into Kucinich's proposal because, like, obviously we have other things to focus on today. Mm-hmm. Mm, of course. I think it's important to realize, though, that this isn't like something that Marianne Williamson just kind of pulled out of the air. She's just advocating for something that's actually the first time it was proposed as a legislative action, some form of a Department of Peace was 1793. Mm, by Benjamin Rush. Yeah. Yeah. Who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he wrote an essay called A Plan for a Peace Office for the United States. This is wild when you hear some of the stuff that's in this original proposal compared to Kucinich and then Marianne today. So here's a couple of the items from the original 1793 plan for a peace office in the United States. One, let a secretary of peace be appointed to preside in this office. Let him be a genuine Republican and a sincere Christian <laughs> was, a, was part of the there's, there's like a lot more to it, too. But that particular line is really funny. Of course, they mean Republican like a supporter of the United States system of government. Yes, to be clear, that has nothing to do with party. This isn't capital R. Yeah, when you're talking when you're talking about like pre 1860, 1850, Republican just means likes democracy. Yeah, likes the American Democratic experiment specifically. Mm hmm. Like, they don't want to bring the king back. <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yes, not a monarchist yeah. is basically <laughs> how you should really read this. Like, now a Republican, you got to jump through all these hoops, you got to believe all this shit. But back then, it was really easy. You're just like, man, fuck the king. Republican. Okay, let's continue this, though, because this is actually, again, this is very interesting in a way. Uh, let a power be given to the Secretary of Peace to establish and maintain free schools in every city, village, and township in the United States. Mm. So free education, something Kucinich was also about, is something that um, was actually proposed in this Department of Peace, which is very interesting. And it goes on to talk about, you know, what they should learn, blah, blah. And then let every family be furnished at public expense by Secretary of this Office, an American edition of the Bible is kind of one of the funnier ones. Um. (laughs) Why not? 
Why not? But to also continue on, to inspire a veneration of human life and a horror for the shedding of human blood, let all those laws be repealed which authorize juries, judges, sheriffs, and hangmen to assume the resentments of individuals and commit murder in cold blood. So this is actually saying let's reduce police violence in this original 1793 Department of Peace and then to subdue the passion for war. And it, this actually advocated for repealing militia laws and stuff to go with that. And like a lot of stuff that is actually kind of controversial for things that we kind of accept as like things that all the founding fathers sort of wanted somewhat like it's it's really weird the sort of ideological spread you had of the of the founding fathers in that some of them really believed in the in the stated ideals of democracy and liberalism and freedom and some really didn't and Mm -hmm. it's 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 a shame that the 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 fuck asses prevailed the day at the constitutional convention (laughs) Because uh, our, our little uh, democratic experiment could have been a lot more democratic. Yeah. Let let Thomas Paine run the country, y'all. <laughs> Honestly, though. Look, this is probably the only uh, timeline in which you have a country because the arguments were so contentious that, like, it's a miracle that they even got through it at all. So can you imagine yeah. something like that? Like, if we had to have another constitutional convention oh, now, God. we would just all murder each other. It would just would never happen. There's some Republicans like right now, some fringe Republicans talking about that so they can get rid of the amendments they don't like and write same sex marriage in in the Constitution or no, no same sex marriage. But like, God, nice. yeah, Very so, cool. so it, it would have been then uh, Thomas Paine in charge of independent Massachusetts. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't sound all bad. Anyway, the point is that even if there's some, there was some very funny stuff to point out, like the giving everyone a Bible in this Department of Peace proposal from 1793, some of it has aged very well, especially like, let's be careful what we authorize in terms of, you know, police violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and specifically the one, number five, uh, let all those laws be repealed, which authorize judges, uh, juries, judges, sheriffs, or hangmen to assume the resentments of individuals and to commit murder in cold blood in any case whatsoever. Like, that's... Yeah. That was talking about uh, police brutality and the death penalty before... Yeah. A lot of people were. This is something we're still dealing with. So even though, like I say, some parts of it were very dated, some parts of it are still relevant to the now and still things that should be involved. Yeah, yeah. This idea has, uh, you know, come up again and again since then. Throughout basically the history of America, even before Kucinich, there have been these sort of somewhat outside the norm senators and, you know, representatives and political activists who have said, we need this Department of Peace. And so Marianne's proposal is it, it comes from a long lineage of these types of ideas. And not not even just like um, proposing a Department of Peace, but successive presidents and uh, national leaders have talked about, you know, uh, we can't let like uh, a lust for war and blood, you know, control our country. Uh, Eisenhower's speech about the military industrial complex at all. That's uh, that sort of thing. And like I said before, the military industrial complex, as with a lot of other complexes, has the government in the stranglehold and we really need to break that. So, yeah, kind of moving to Marianne's proposal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, moving from regulatory capture, which is um, we, we do talk about that pretty often. But uh, if anybody has read Thomas Frank's book, The Wrecking Crew, you will gain a completely fresh understanding that this is not like something that just started with Trump. This has been like an organized policy dating back to maybe the 80s or a little bit earlier of just getting in charge of industries and just ransacking them for private purposes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's let's move let's move to our main event. Yeah, that the undercard wasn't amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so Marianne uh, put out her full proposal for the U.S. Department of Peace. And it's been pretty well received overall. Like, I think a lot of people kind of looked at this and went, okay, holy shit, she is a serious candidate. I mean, not to say that she wasn't a serious candidate before, but just that a lot of people, you know, they need something to kind of push them towards taking any candidate, really, but especially an outsider candidate seriously. Right. For us who have been like watching this campaign uh, since roughly the beginning Mm-hmm. It was more focused since the debate, but roughly since the beginning. She's been running like she wants to be president the entire time. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who have who are who are running and they run like to sell a book. Or run to be in the cabinet. Or run for a cab she has not been running for a cabinet position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's been she's been running to like win the election the entire time, which yeah. is very cool. 
Yeah, I think this proposal is like helping to bring a lot of people into that realization of how serious she is and and how serious her ideas are. And this is a very thorough proposal. Like this is on the level of like the Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren docs that they put out, you know, that people always like kind of make a lot of noise about. And a lot of those are good. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm just trying to say that this is in that same league of like a very thoughtful and very complete proposal. Mm hmm. Yeah, I agree. So uh, let's kind of get into it. You know, we've been talking a lot about, uh, about some different Department of Peace plans before. What does Marianne's proposal have? I would say this one stands out based on how much of it emphasizes national peacemaking, as in domestic peacemaking. Right. I don't think we got a chance to say this, but we're now in an era where rage and toxicity are like intertwined with capitalism. There are so many businesses that literally run off rage and toxicity and triggering those emotions in people. And mm -hmm. given that we have so many industries that survive off of getting clicks, getting likes, getting retweets, getting donations and playing on emotional hot buttons, it's kind of inevitable that that creates violence in culture. Mm -hmm. it, it just does. So how can that violence be mitigated? Well, part of it is controlling the amount of toxicity that is promoted on media and making a culture where that stuff does not find a foothold. It's important to remember that a lot of the toxicity and rage that fuel American discourse don't have the same foothold in other countries because they have different economic systems, different cultures, and different incentives. That's a good point. I'm just going to read from Marianne's website. Um, Domestically, the U.S. Department of Peace will work to provide much-needed assistance to efforts by city, county, and state governments in coordinating existing programs, as well as develop new programs based on best practices nationally, teach violence prevention and conflict resolution to America's school children, effectively treat and dismantle gang psychology, reform our criminal justice system towards a focus on restorative and healing-oriented approaches rather than punitive alone, reshape our prison system by addressing racial injustices and recidivism, rehabilitate the prison population, foster strategies to eliminate the school-to-prison pipeline, build peacemaking efforts among conflicting cultures here and abroad, work with local and state governments to help change police culture and the way that police work with our communities with the goal of fostering improved relations, work with local and state governments to lessen gun violence on a national level, examine how elements of our food supply affect our behaviors, and finally, uh, address factors such as drug and alcohol abuse, mistreatment of the elderly, and much more. So let's let's talk let's talk about that because this is this is like what I was touching on at the beginning of the program. I talked about what actually builds peace. What does an active peace look like? And a lot of these are really strong points. And Marianne has made the point to to discuss many times these critical factors in reducing violence on not just a small mm -hmm. scale, but on a large scale. And we don't generally think of things like we do on this podcast, but a lot of people don't necessarily think of things like, oh, these people like abusing their wives, for instance, they're contributing to the pipeline that, you know, makes our military terrible. Well, they do directly. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think this proposal is really telling of the sort of greater Marianne mindset that she's trying to put forth and is putting forth with her campaign and her proposals. And that it's really, you know, at a surface level, these policies seem really scattershot and unrelated to each other. But uh, when you sort of look at them and look at the causes and effects of these different things, they really kind of holistically sync together, which I think is an, is an understanding that policymakers and kind of wonks don't really see that a lot of these issues are, are really interconnected. Like when we were talking about climate change before, climate change is hooked into you know, food sources and um, food supplies and uh, import export and all of these different things that you that you wouldn't normally think of when you think of climate change. Like ev everything sort of interlocks together in order to really treat problems. You have to look right. at them from a more holistic perspective, which is what the Department of Peace is trying to do, or at least proposing trying to do. And so when she mentions the food supply, you know, our food chain in the Department of Peace, a lot of people might see that and think, why is that related? But it's like you say, there's these there's these links under the surface. And, and the way I see it a lot is that, you know, Marianne is approaching politics the way that she approaches a lot of like kind of the counseling slash, if you want to call it, maybe like healing 
type work that she does, where she sees this problem, she knows it's a deep problem, and she's trying to address it from a lot of different angles to see what's most effective and what can kind of like bring things into a healthier space. Mm hmm. And I think, you know, like we were saying before, it's really important that the Department of Peace not only focuses, like you were saying, um, on international peace, but on internal and domestic peace. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the Department of Peace is going to own the owners of libs, essentially. <laughs> That's a funny way to put it, but you might be onto something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of the cool things that are like deeper into this whole proposal, too, is that, again, this is really about active stuff. And so the Department of Peace would create and establish a peace academy modeled after military service academies, which would provide a four year concentration in peace education. And it would like lead into public service programs and stuff and working in nonviolent conflict resolution, all these things. But yeah, like the Department of Peace would actually actively take youths or, you know, not necessarily just youths, but we tend to think of, you know, college and these kind of training programs. So like take youths and sort of say, okay, do you want to learn how to be a conflict resolver in a peaceful way? And like, that's your life? Because we need those people. Well, see, when you put it, well, when the, when the sales pitch is, would you like to resolve conflicts in a peaceful way? It makes you think, you know, professional hippie or some kind of bullshit like that. And you will get some yeah. hippies. No, and that's fine. But like from a practical perspective, uh, if you want to work in the State Department, if you want to become a diplomat, if you want to become a community leader, if you want to run for city council, like this is something that is going to be a good national service to get your foot in the door for a wide variety of things in terms of like getting a job. That's actually a great point, because a lot of times people use the, that, the military as that jumping off point. And so we have state departments and other departments staffed heavily with ex-military people. And while that's not necessarily like all bad all the time, I don't want to just like shit on everybody who's ever been in the military. Don't get me wrong. Right. There are a lot of people that come out of the military without necessarily having a lot of great ideas. And then they go into diplomacy. That's not a great path. That's not a good pipeline. Mm hmm. Right. And, you know, we only have a few pipelines to public service in America. And one of them is like you go to an Ivy League school or you join the military, you know, like you do the Gravel Kid thing and you join the military and you get a job at an institute and then you go up from there. I'm just going to keep it real with you here. We don't need any more Model UN players in fucking government. Stop. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> No more student council people. <laughs> I, 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 I don't care that you got best delegate award at the at the at the security council meeting when you were playing fucking Germany. Like, seriously, stop. Uh, motion to not stop. Do I get a second for that motion? Do I have a second? Any second. OK. <laughs> mo mo motion is tabled for now. Yeah, motion table, not motion failed. It's table. No. It'll be back. It'll be back. The wonks will keep working on it. Yeah, the wonks. Yeah. They're waiting right outside the studio. Like, Model UN is, is such a wonk activity. Like, imagine being interested in that. <laughs> It's, it's too bad it's not good, honestly. Like, it's really too bad because programs like that, ideally, like, that is the kind of stuff that this Department of Peace is kind of about in a way, right? Like, yeah. But the fact of the matter is that Model UN often is just sort of this, like, kind of wank off for, like, yeah. kids who don't really need a hand up in terms of, like, their credentials anyway. Mo Model UN is a neoliberal circle jerk about how, uh, you know, my nation can be the, the best steward of the global community while incorporating national <laughs> objectives. <laughs> right. Yeah, it doesn't really encourage avant-garde political thought, that's for sure. It is entirely an, an exercise in neoliberal wankery. That's the big shame of it, because like it, it's an experimental playground where nothing's on the line, nothing's at stake. And so mm -hmm. it should be this place for people to pursue these wild political ideas. And then so often it's like, well, we did model UN and, and Korea and South Africa came up with like a 15% wheat tax thing that's going to make them both a lot of money. 
Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I, I feel like a lot of this is mirroring the ineffectual power and neoliberalness of the actual UN. We can go into this on a different episode, but the UN needs to have more teeth to it. Well, we can go into why the UN doesn't have teeth more like. But if you were to make a model UN that actually like accomplished shit, it would not be a very good UN. So, yeah. But to, to kind of circle back around to our original point on the Peace Academy, after you do a four-year service, and I don't know what entrance qualifications would be, but if you're doing four years there and then you're doing five years in domestic or international conflict resolution, that's basically like a decade. So you have people who are coming out and let's say that they're 30 by the time that they go through with all of that. Those people are going to be very well suited to working in either the state level or the federal level. Yes. Or just on the community level, obviously, to be useful in communities. Yeah, well, call back to our last episode with Howie Hawkins. Uh, you know, we mm -hmm. need better organizers. And like these, these people would come out of this training ready to be political organizers without a doubt. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, 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 the sort of Department of Peace would be excellent at training organizers because or, organizers as a profession is a lot about conflict resolution and building peace and respect within communities. The tracks are a lot of the same there. One of the reasons why this is going to become so fiercely opposed is because can you imagine like a bunch of 32-year-old nationally and internationally trained local organizers in your state. Oh, it would change the culture of America mm -hmm. so radically. And what percentage of those people will be voting for the next Donald Trump? Probably a low percentage. I mean, you, you got to think back to like the old uh, WPA programs under the New Deal and how those sort of documented and changed the culture of America. Mm hmm. I think another aspect we really ought to touch on probably is she, she has a very uh, nice little section about how will the Department of Peace be paid for. And of course, this is like a common rhetoric in American politics is where does the money come from? But of course, the military never has to answer that question conveniently. The military is exempt. They're the one exemption to this rule of where does the money come from? The military is exempt. And obviously, so are rich people who don't like to pay taxes. Oh, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've never heard any Republican running for office and they're asked, oh, you want these tax cuts, huh? Well, how do you pay for them? <laughs> Where does this, what does this do to our budget? No one cares. Oh, the, the tax cuts pay for themselves. They pay for themselves. And uh. it's towards a trillion a year deficit because of the Trump tax cuts. Like fucking Im imagine being an unironic Reagan trickle down economic supporter in 2019. Jesus fucking Christ. Seriously, I, I imagine none of the people that listen to this show probably are. But maybe you have friends and family that are Reagan era economic types and you need to like if, if there is a Reaganomic site that you know, just go up to them and say, What the fuck, man? Why are you doing this? <laughs> what what the actual fuck, man? <laughs> Members of the press, what the fuck? Uh, when she was asked how she could pay for the department, uh, she did an interview saying that the money could come from the current defense budget. 2% of our national defense budget. That's not a lot. That's a very small amount. And especially because we're not talking about buying hardware. It's more about personal resources and personnel resources. So that 2% can go a lot of a longer way than 2% of the Department of Defense budget. One of the things that, like, if you're following the development of the Department of Peace, specifically Marianne's proposal, is you may say, well, a lot of international peacekeeping is currently handled by the State Department or handled by the Defense Department. A lot of these specific agenda points in terms of development of international education, humanitarian assistance, food security, all of those things, a lot of them come into purview of the State Department. But that is kind of the elegance of this particular proposal. I don't have a copy of Barbara Lee's Department of Peace proposal in front of me because mm -hmm. she's been a longtime advocate of this as well. But Marianne's proposal specifically, a lot of the money comes from the existing departments because it leans a lot on consolidation of mm -hmm. work that is already being done in the government, but is like in a corner office somewhere and doesn't have any funding at all. Also, just mm -hmm. to like get back to that $1 trillion in annual debt that we're looking at, you know, the, the part of the point that she makes about the Department of Peace is that if we wield peace effectively as a diplomatic tool, it's going to be good for our long term economy because war is very expensive. Mm hmm. Even like domestically, if we were to take any of these issues and talk about like what they cost in terms of like cash, it would be like a shocking amount. 
if we were to just pick something like sexual assault, okay, well, how much does mm-hmm. that kind of domestic violence, sexual assault, how much does that cost? Okay, you've got lost productivity because if somebody's getting beat on by their husband, they're not showing up to work on time. Medical bills, what kind of stress does that put on the system? Especially if you're trying to advocate for a single payer system. Okay, how much do court cases cost? How much does pain and suffering cost? You know, all of these things. It's like I've been saying, like everything is connected to everything else. And until you realize that in politics, you're going to have a half-cocked policy effort. Right. If you are doing what we've done typically, and this is going back to the surgeon metaphor, except we do this for every single issue in America. We wait until something is on fire or there's a pile of dead bodies. And then we go, whoa, what, what's happening here? How can we fix this? And then it goes through our political process. And then the answer that comes out of the political process is always the least expensive, least controversial, day late and a dollar short proposal for solving the most surface aspect of it because the goal of the politician that puts the policies in place or at least what can make it out of the consensus is really more something that is designed to upset as few people as possible and preserve jobs on Capitol Hill. They're not really mm-hmm. designed to, okay, well, what causes these problems? Why do they happen? And that is the difference between putting a Band-Aid on something and repairing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked a lot about um, domestic peacemaking, and that's certainly a big part of it. But the other, of course, plank of the Department of Peace is promoting peace abroad. Let me just kind of read out what the uh, internationally, the U.S. Department of Peace will focus on the following areas, among others. Provide peacebuilding support to assist governments and communities in attempts to end conflicts instead of providing military aid, which prolongs conflicts. Provide and help coordinate humanitarian assistance around the world to help people and governments get out of the current crises and have a chance to build peaceful lives in the future. Humanitarian assistance may include things like food security, healthcare, education, women, children, and a variety of other types of aid. Provide community building and rebuilding assistance to aid people in countries in creating a more sustainable, peaceful culture that will help to prevent future conflicts. Support our military with complementary approaches to peace building. Create and administer a U.S. Peace Academy acting as, acting as a sister organization to the U.S. Military Academy. And finally, the Secretary of the Department of Peace and the Department will advise the Secretaries of Defense and State on matters related to national security and will coordinate peacemaking efforts across those departments. Let's go through those point by point instead of just laying them down on people. Uh, if you guys <laughs> yeah, have yeah. individual comments on the mechanics of each of those, pros and cons, etc. Humanitarian uh, assistance includes aid like uh, food security, healthcare, education. That's definitely something that's going to be good because it was uh, Thomas Sankara. We could do a good episode on Thomas Sankara at some point. And he says, um, those who come with wheat, millet, corn, or milk, they are not helping us. Those who really want to help us can give us plows, tractor, fertilizer, insecticide, watering cans, drills, and dams. This That is how we would define food aid. And it's the whole sort of, you give a man a fish, uh, he eats for a day, teach a man to fish, a sort of thing where aid to countries has typically been in the form of direct aid that um, doesn't build up the country. It just sustains it. It creates a reliance, in fact, a lot of the time, which is what mm. Thomas Sankara was specifically scared of, like happening, you know, if, if they took aid from the wrong countries and those countries, you know, they become reliant on that. And then those countries start having a certain kind of power over you because they're going to cut that aid off. Yeah, it, it's the whole sort of um, the IMF loans and the, 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 the neoliberal colonialism but with extra steps and involving loans and food aid and shit that, that's going on in Africa today and has been for the last few decades. Like this doesn't help build up the governments. This doesn't help build up the people and the local economies. It sustains them and helps uh, rich capitalists extract resources better from the region, but it doesn't build up the local forces from being mm-hmm. able to feed themselves. And like, it's been so many years since NGOs have really put effort into working with the global South and taking a scientific approach. So the science in terms of what builds neighborhoods and what builds villages and what builds communities on an international level is basically already in. Like we now know what works more or less, and that is giving people means to acquire independence, specifically groups who have historically been suppressed in those countries, which 95% of the time is women. Mm-hmm. Like we already know that when you when you give the women the business, the, the overall economic status of that city and on a large enough scale, that country improves. So it's really just a matter of cultural logistics and Mm -hmm. working with communities to make sure that that money does not fade out into overhead or get laundered through entities that aren't really involved in the actual work. Human manpower is actually like 
a very important commodity when we talk about international aid, because we've already tried dumping a bunch of money on these kind of problems. And the actual bottleneck is actual people who have like local connections, have local know-how. And it's hard to find people who have, first of all, the level of expertise and the time and the ability to do it because they have, you know, competition from the private sector or they've got their own lives at home domestically. So the government does potentially have a role in giving people here who are interested in doing that, like the means to do it, if you know what I'm saying. And that's, I guess, part of why doing this on a departmental level that's more coordinated is potentially going to be like a boon for those communities. Definitely, definitely. Like it's more about the people than the dollar count. For people who don't know no better, foreign aid is basically a racket. Like these groups Mm -hmm. that have the money to invest in like, it's usually mostly the United States when we talk about the World Bank, but they can charge like usurious loans and they use Mm -hmm. those loans as leverage to create policy changes that makes it harder for those countries to break the cycle of poverty that they're in long term. And one of the problems is a lot of times you can be thrown into economic distress by a one-time event. And those events, once you go to a bank to get like a cash loan, in the same way that payday loans fuck over people in the United States, these loans also fuck over countries in the third world. And here in America, we don't Mm -hmm. understand it to a level of, well, they're down there in that area of the world. So they just don't know how to do anything with money. They're corrupt. They're shitheads. And we could do an entire episode on how the phrase corruption is used to tar countries in the global South, third world, whatever you want to call the shit into Mm -hmm. making them uh, treat them like they're incompetent for publicity reasons to fuck with them economically. But here's the shit, though. Here's the shit, though. Marianne Williamson is the TV tropes of presidential candidates. (laughs) (laughs) We're not getting into this again. Because the because the shit that she touches on is usually so deep that it it grabs five other issues that yes. are like at the actual core of why a situation is fucked up to begin with. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. That's the special yeah. message here. Like that's that's what's that's what we've been emphasizing. That Marianne had the Marianne's holistic approach better captures issues than wonks do. I just want to say, you know, for those of you listening out there, maybe you're not the biggest Marianne fan now or whatever. But if you appreciate this podcast, do know that, like, we came together because we were all interested in the Marianne Williamson campaign. Like, there's good things coming out of it, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you consider this podcast a good thing, then sure. (laughs) Presumably our listeners must, right? I think it's a good thing. I, I assume a lot of our listeners listen because they hate us and are looking for a way to dunk on us. Yeah, like 70% oh, yeah. of our viewership is Reply Guys right now. <laughs> shout out to Republican Reply Guys. We love y'all. Yeah, sh- shout out. We love you. We love you, man. Now, uh, if we want to sort of begin wrapping up here, you know, one kind of... No, I don't want to wrap up, but go ahead. Okay, go ahead. okay sure. I, I, I was just going <laughs> to... T- Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan. Remember him? Of course you don't. Good. No. Tim Ryan, who is running for president, I suppose. I've just been reminded of this. He's trying to reformat his campaign. And his new look is is about Zen and about inner peace, which, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know, that, that also sounds like another certain candidate. Don't say you like the anime unless you've already read the manga, y'all. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, you know, we, we were talking about different candidates' merchandise offerings a few episodes ago. And now we got now we got this new shirt by Tim Ryan and it says Namaste, America. And it, and it has the little Tim Ryan logo. Tim Ryan's merchandise still looks generic and ugly and ridiculous. And all this is true. And and just like on an aesthetic level, I'm not even just talking, you know, I'm just keeping it real. Like Tim Ryan's logo looks like the fake logo for a, for a mayoral campaign. You get like a, in like a video game when they have like little flavor features around the world, uh, around the map and they have like campaign posters. Do you guys remember the yes men who used to just like hold fake conferences and stuff and pretend to be corporations or something legitimate? Like this looks like one of their like fake ops, you know, like (laughs) Tim Ryan was made up. He has not existed before 2019. (laughs) 
Tim Ryan is an extended the onion joke. Like um fucking hard drive <laughs> mag- hard drive magazine has Ace Watkins. Yeah. But uh but the, onion the, has the Tim onions Ryan. go deeper. They have Tim Ryan. And like Namaste America, seriously, that's what you're gonna put on the shirt. Do you want people to think of California Uberalas by the dead Kennedys? Well, here's the thing. If you've looked into Tim Ryan's history, transcendental meditation is something that he has been interested in for like a couple decades. That is like mm-hmm. one of his things. I don't remember all the details, but like his business in Youngstown was like teaching this shit to like factory workers and people who are economically struggling and kind of helping them purify mentally because, you know, shit else wasn't going on economically. So I'm not going to hit him mm-hmm. too hard on like the good faith, bad faith clout chasing of uh, of Namaste America. But I'm just I'm just saying it's an ugly shirt my thing that pisses me off about this is that there were people that literally like on social media and in the news like suggested that marianne might be a part of a dangerous cult which even at one point like led to a rumor that she was a scientologist which thankfully she squashed very quickly but it was all based on the fact that she has a a passing link to transcendental meditation herself and like people have made like made the biggest deal it's a cult it's all this i haven't heard one person say tim ryan's in a cult is is anyone gonna write some fucking idiotic think piece that's like tim ryan isn't just religious he's also dangerous for america no that will never happen and like Listen, I don't want to be one of those people that says this for every issue. However, the reason for this rhymes with blissogyny. (laughs) (laughs) It rhymes with Texism. (laughs) But also partially it's because Tim Ryan is like a dweeb in an elected office. So there's no like suspicion that he... He's not interesting enough for anyone to think that he's like in a cult. Like he's just a geek. He doesn't quote unquote act weird. Right. But like it's partially like a, a gender thing. This is throwback to our second episode, like secretly occult people in our politics, you know, mm-hmm. like they, they hide this shit and act, quote unquote, normal. Marianne's just very honest about who she is. The people who are actually in a cult who are doing like skull and bone shit are people like George Bush and John right. Kerry. And they wear a suit and tie mm-hmm. to work 90 percent of the time. And then uh, they're so bored. That they're like, well, uh, let's like pretend we worship the devil for a night and let's dance around this fire naked. <laughs> and Marianne, all she does is she gets on Twitter and she's like, let's send some angels to Syria. Like shit, this shit send anybody like <laughs> it's like Tim Ryan. It's unfortunate that he is regarded as normal in, in like a just society. Tim Ryan would be the farthest fucking thing from normal. Like, like <laughs> look at him. <laughs> no, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't I don't hate Tim Ryan. No, no. But I do agree with with just the exact phrasing that in like a fair society, Tim Ryan would be seen as like a little bit odd in terms of yeah. his personality and policy. And people who are a little more plainly spoken and outspoken when they're not running for president would be seen as the norm. And by the way, I'm bending over backwards to be nice to Tim Ryan here. <laughs> It will be your downfall. But if we were all to have a beer with Tim Ryan and he wasn't running for president, I imagine that for almost all the Democratic field, we would find a few things we had in common with them and mm-hmm. we would be like, oh, he, you know what? He was not actually all that bad. I would go further than that. The dude's into TM. He's probably cool in person. Right, exactly. Like, and that's that's the frustrating part for me a lot of times with the the whole political thing. Right. Yeah. It's like it's like I feel like yeah I feel like a lot of these candidates that I feel questionable about as a candidate Tim Ryan even more questionable like like Harris even I bet if I sat down with Harris I would be like wow you're a much more interesting and like better person than I would have ever imagined you know what I mean like, like honestly ab- abolish politicians as a class so I don't have to I don't have to begrudgingly hate people like seriously. Yeah, I definitely put Harris into that box because if you look at footage of her before she ran for president, it's like, oh, yeah, she's kind of cool. And now it's like, oh, what what happened? Yeah. We're very grateful for the candidates that are running as their authentic selves. And maybe because they couldn't hire those very expensive consultants who tell you to behave in that way to boost your numbers. I think Marianne probably just couldn't run any other way. Like, I don't think she'd be capable. She doesn't seem like that kind of person. Somebody mm-hmm. dredged up like a interview from quite a ways back. It's one of the oldest ones that's been picked up yet. I've seen it. Uh, I don't know. Do you know exactly how old it is? Because I kind of forgot. Wasn't this one from? Well, here's the thing that she's got a lot of old ones. I'm thinking of one from 99. Yeah, that's the one. That's it. Yeah. So this is like this is 20 years ago now because it's 2019 now. And, and she's literally talking about some of this same stuff. Right. 
And you would be considered a psycho in 99 for having any of the views that are considered mainstream now. Oh, for sure. But seriously, like you could take this video and if she didn't look younger in it, you know, if you just like took the audio out of this and played it for somebody and said, this is this is an interview she just gave. It wouldn't seem weird at all. Correct. It's really rad. Who else has that level of consistency? I guess you could always make the argument that Bernie is. Yeah, Bernie has also has a very strong integrity to what he says but after the, that the mm-hmm. list kind of drops a little bit yes yeah yeah unfortunate yang's pretty true to himself this is something we talk about <laughs> sometimes mm. <laughs> now whether being true to himself is all good or not but to say he's not an authentic candidate again this is like the only one of the only reasons that i've kind of like given him some of my interest is because of his just very strong level of authenticity even if i disagree with a lot of individual things that he says. So again, it's what are we what are we saying though when we say it's Bernie, it's Marianne, it's Yang? We're saying it's the outsiders, that it's these authentic outsiders that speak to us. And that's how a lot of other people feel right now, too. That's very correct. The establishment politicians fucking suck. And the like the the default, it's like a little node that they attach into your brain when you get into Congress, when you get into Washington, DC, that makes you act just fucking bizarre and it's the worst and I, I i hate politicians who act like politicians we need people who you know say what they want and then do it yeah i don't want any more of the dc brain worm man <laughs> so with that uh, said very well and very eloquently i just want to say you know listeners go check out the department of peace proposal on marianne williamson's website again even if you're not necessarily yeah. like marianne's your first candidate this Department of Peace should be a priority for you that you should be pushing to your candidate. We need this shit. We need to incorporate it into the major democratic platform like Bernie made Free College and Medicare for All. We need to, like like we said last week, or last episode with Howie, we need to push more of these issues into the mainstream. Yeah, don't get so caught up in standing for your candidate that you forget like why and what the policy basis for that is and creating the policy pressure to achieve those goals. And that's kind of why I want to talk to more of the people that make that conversation happen. Uh, in terms of people who are activists and people who also are working to push politics in a more sustainable direction. And that's what we hope to kind of do in our own small way here with this podcast and with you as our lovely, lovely listeners, you beautiful, amazing people who tune in. We're buttering you up so that uh, we can get you to obviously like and review the show on iTunes. I would say, Kennedy, based on your knowledge of analytics, what's our timeline for hitting new and trending if we're going to hit it the next month, the next three weeks? Yeah, we've got we've got about a month left to really go hard on trying to get our metrics during the early window, which is when a lot of these platforms like iTunes kind of give you a little bit of favorability in terms of to become trending down the road, you need a lot bigger numbers. So mm-hmm. if you are listening to the podcast and you have the ability to rate us on iTunes or on Stitcher or on CastBox Anything. or anywhere... <laughs> just, like don't just passively interact with the show and go oh they, they sound nice really help us i know it's going to be only a small percentage but that percentage means everything to us right now if you're on twitter follow us on twitter uh we're at nsf wonks w-o-n-k-s mm-hmm. and if you do stuff like retweet the episode things like that like it really does make a big difference it, it really shit. helps yeah, I, I used to make fun of the nerds who were in their podcast. Oh, please like us. It helps. But like, then I got in the game. Like us. It really it, does. It really it does. It fucking helps. helps. Yeah, it really does fucking help. And we're really building something good here. Like this podcast is, is becoming very exciting for us. And we hope it's exciting for you as listeners as it is for us. I think it is. We have a lot more very incredible stuff planned. And yeah, like, let's keep this thing going, everybody. So yeah, correct. So thank you for listening. I'm Brandon Buchanan on behalf of both Kennedy Cooper mm-hmm. and uh, Leia Rose. Mm-hmm. This has been Not Safe for Wonks. Thank you again for listening. See ya. Bye-bye.